you help me put this down? Good morning. morning. Thank you. Awesome. Morena. Um, we're into week seven on our series on Philippians. Is this a good point? This is a good point. Um, the session today are titled um, Working Out Your Salvation with Fear and Trembling. Um, I always like to start with an objective, and whilst I'd love you to love what I say, to enjoy it, and to laugh at my jokes, to feel good, my real prayer is that through the miracle of the Holy Spirit, your hearts would somehow be touched, that you'd be refreshed in your realisation of just how much you are loved, how truly special you are, and that this realisation would spur you on to work on your walk of faith with Jesus. So I want to open in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge your glory and your magnificence, and yet we marvel at your intimacy, that you love every one of us, and that you are present with us this morning. Each of us are here for a reason, Lord, and I pray that you would touch our hearts right where we are. Help us to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, touch my lips that I may speak your words of truth and life. Amen. So, introduction to me, I'm Andrew Bardsley. Um, The last Last year I spoke and um, I followed in a series where Jean Rhodes had previously spoken and she was amazing. Um, And I blatantly copied a lot of what she did, including um, reading and her her words were amazing and she read them amazingly and um, I'm doing the same this morning. She also started her introduction with a family snap, so um, I'm doing the same this morning. Um, That's Jackie and I in the background and our four... uh, (laughs) Four lovely daughters, and it's fantastic to see Courtney and Sam here this morning. Um, and then last week, Kerry shared um, an amazing snap of her and someone else. Um, um, it was a- a- Andrew Bennett, so I'm, I'm doing the same. This is Jackie and I. I have to confess, this is not a recent photo. <laughs> I, d- I don't know if you picked that up. Um, one, one of us has a little bit more grey hair than them, and I don't know how, but the other one doesn't. It's amazing. But because um, many of you will have seen a couple of these photos, um, I'll put up a third photo of introduction. Um, So the little lady is my mother, um, and the other person is a complete random stranger. Um, And I'm going to tell a story about this a little later in the service, but um, uh, that's my very brief introduction. So let's start with our passage this morning. So... um, we are in Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, if you, have, if you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Okay, so that's our passage this morning. And um, 
to give you a sense of where we're going, I'm, I'm actually only going to talk to the first three of these. The first point is about cause and effect. It's, in fact, it's just the first word of the passage. Um, secondly, a word of encouragement to us all. And then the real meat of what I'll talk about today is, is what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Okay, so we start with our first word, which is therefore. And we know whenever Paul uses the word therefore, it's kind of a code. It's a, it's a logic. It's a bit like programming for those of you that way inclined, or more simply, I'm hungry, therefore I'm going to cook a meal. So therefores are important. And my first point is to outline what the therefore is um, in this phrase. And I like to think of it as cause and effect, which is not quite right, but for the purposes of what I'm talking about this morning, um, it's, it's a useful framework. One of the commentators that I read uh, describes this passage as an exhortation to obedience. So in, um, in his terms, um, obedience is the effect, but we need to have in our heads what the cause is. So one of the examples that we could think about for cause and effect is gravity. So here we see um, an astronaut in space where there's no gravity. Um, and I want you to picture yourselves uh, in an alternative universe where there is no gravity, where there's no universal force of gravity pulling everything towards mass. Um, and then from that universe, you're uh, transported into this universe where there is gravity and where everything falls in the same direction. You'd be pretty confused. You'd kind of say, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I, it's like it's magic. Um, I can't believe my eyes. It's only when the force of gravity was explained that we would understand. Ah, now that makes perfect sense, cause and effect. And the reason I think that the therefore sequence is important is because sometimes we forget the cause and just focus on the effect. The Jewish leaders were often characterised as being legalistic, of stressing the importance of following the letter of the law. For us today, that can take different forms. To live the Christian life, you must do X, Y, or Z. We can feel that we need to behave in a certain way, or do certain things, or say certain things. When we start at the end, it doesn't make sense. For those of us who are legalistic, some of us like rules. Um, it might seem attractive, but for most of us, that can feel heavy and confusing, uh, the burden to do the right thing. But when we start with the cause, it completely changes our understanding and our desire. So over the last few weeks, Kerry and Chris have covered off verses 1 to 11, um, which is, it describes about the most amazing cause that you could ever um, imagine. Jesus, in the very nature of God, humbling himself, making himself nothing. Choosing to take the nature of a servant became being made in human likeness. He was obedient to the point of death, even death, agonizing death on a cross for us. So my summary of the cause, God, all-powerful, magnificent, awesome in every way, beyond compare, created the immensity of the universe at his very word. Yet he knows you intimately. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. Because of God's immense love for us, he sacrificed his beloved son, who in turn was obedient to death. When we became Christian, we got some inkling of this wonderful love, and it changes us. 
When we turn our faces towards God, he smiles at us, and a response is to look into his eyes, knowing how unworthy we are, yet also knowing that in Jesus we are forgiven and fully accepted into his arms. So we look into his face with joy and purity, asking, what's next, Papa? Our deepest desire becomes to please the Father. When we understand the cause, the effect becomes natural. It becomes what we want to do, not what we feel obliged to do. When we fully understand the cause, it changes us. So this phrase, what's next, Papa, is one that I really love. Um, it's from the message version of Romans uh, 5.8. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. I love that, the phrase, um, what's next, Papa? Um, and I tried to find some images, and I, I, I crashed and burned. I couldn't find anything really suitable for, for, for that. But there's a couple of pictures um, I, that I do want to show that pick up elements of it. Um, I, I love this because it has a sense that I am in the Father's arms. I am safe. I am loved. I am secure. I am pure because he has made me pure. And there's a, I don't know, the element of that's the relationship with God that I want to have. And the second one, kind of similar, but I really love the look of the father um, because it reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Um, so if you remember, this very useless son um, kind of steals the family jewels and absconds and does terrible things and um, gets into lots and lots of trouble and he needs rescue from his father. And um, the father, who has every right to be really, really grumpy and angry with the son and to cut him out, but the father loves the son. The father loves him so much, he's, he's looking out for him every day from a distance, just hoping that he will come back to him one day. And, um, and he does. Um, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And that's, I think that's what that father is doing. It's showing that element of God in terms of the relationship that he wants to have. He's not condemning us. He's loving us and wanting us to have an adventure with, with him. So my second point this morning is a word of encouragement. So the, the, I've covered, <laughs> we're going to be a long time, I've covered the first word in my um, <laughs> thousand and two words, I'm uncovering the next three now. We speed up after that. That's all right. Uh, my dear friend, so has anyone ever given you encouragement that really makes an impression? Uh, some of us have the gift of encouragement. Um, I know my friend Grant Malloy is brilliant at encouraging people. But have you ever had a person in your life who just speaks those words at the right time to make you feel like, ah, oh, it's not so bad after all, or, wow, I'm seeing this challenge in a completely different way. Visitors into your home who, who bless you because of what they say and how, how they encourage you. Um, and that's what Paul is doing in the Philippians. Um, how do we feel about Paul? 
I've been amazed over the year to hear it, different views about Paul, and um, the, the reading up here um, kind of explains it to me a little bit. Ask any number of people to name their favourite Pauline letter. Sorry, not Pauline Littlestone. The Pauline letter. That was a joke. <laughs> uh, many people will say it's Philippians for good reason. Whereas we meet an erudite Paul in Romans, bombastic Paul in Galatians, and bombastic Paul in 2 Corinthians, and a sometimes baffling Paul in 1 Corinthians, here we find a very personal and warm human being who pours out a heart of affection for his friends in Philippi. In short, many of us like Philippians because he likes the Paul that we meet here. So therefore, my dear friends, in fact, the whole of Philippians, is, it's a joyous letter. It's a letter from Paul who loves them deeply. He's caring for these people, and he wants the best for them. This warmth and love is the same for you. You are loved. We are loved beyond our wildest dreams. And Paul is sharing with us how to respond to that love back to cause and effect. The cause is the great love. One of the effects is that we have this amazing love for each other. We genuinely want the best for each other. We are happy to put the needs of others ahead of our own. Sometimes we can feel a little bit down, like we lose sight of the cause. We feel, start feeling bad about um, the effect that we're having or the lack of effect. We know that we should be loving others more. We know that we should be kind and generous and at peace with our community. Sometimes we can be discouraged and think, I can't do that. It's too hard. That doesn't sound like me. But it's easier than we think. And we do so much of it already. I was hugely encouraged two weeks ago when uh, Debbie shared um, about Global Focus, and she put up this list of 20 different ways um, in which we are reaching our community and each other and loving each other and sharing God's love, the, the supporting the food bank and um, the cafe downstairs and mainly music and this long list of what we are doing as, as a community. So we are, we are already there. Um, my encouragement is the same as Paul's. Continue to do the same things that you're already doing. This is us being a light in the world. We should be encouraged. Okay, point three. As I said, this is kind of the, um, the meat of what I want to talk about this morning. Um, what does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Um, I think when I read this at the beginning, I thought, yeah, I vaguely know, and then I realised, oh, actually, oh, I haven't got a clue. So it's, um, it's been fun to e explore and, I guess, come up with a, a, a bit of a version of that that I, I hope means something to you. So I'm kicking off with fear and trembling. Um, so fear and trembling, um, pretty easy to interpret that negatively. I mean, I don't like trembling, and I certainly don't like fear. Um, so what does it mean, uh, fear and trembling? So in complete contrast to uh, my first read of fear and trembling, Timothy Keller says that the Old Testament meaning of fear and trembling is more like inner awe and wonder. And I really like that. Um, when we get an inkling of the holiness of God, uh, we've been singing about the holiness of God, um, plus the realisation that he loves us, so much that he reaches out to us in the most powerful and intimate way that we could ever imagine. That's the fear and trembling that we approach him with, awe and wonder. When we're sitting on his knee, gazing into his face, somewhat like those pictures I showed, 
we have that awe and wonder. Awe in the holiness of God and wonder that he loves us um, so much. Um, I really like the, the, the quote up here. It's not up here. I skipped it. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is not a fear of a lost sinner before the Holy One, but a fear of a true child before the most loving of all fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt that we might do to him. Um, and I think that's, that's really cool. Okay, so... Th- that's the fear and trembling bit. What about the work out your salvation bit? Uh, what does it mean? Who is it that does the working out? Is it us or is it God? Does the fact that it has to be worked out mean that it's not yet complete? Whose salvation is it? Is it mine or is it ours? Or does working out out mean it's like a complicated maths puzzle that's something that you've got to work out? Or is it an outward expression um, of... So the message version of these verses answers some of those questions. You should simply keep on doing what you've been doing, as I said before, from the beginning. Live in responsive obedience. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. For me, that's what working out means. The energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. So does our salvation come from us working it out? So absolutely not. The Bible's very clear that salvation comes from God through Jesus. Our salvation is assured. It doesn't mean that we are working for our salvation, uh, but the statement implies a need to live out, to practice, to demonstrate and exhibit the salvation which believers have in Christ. It means to carry through to fruition. Um, although Paul reminds us in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that the one who began a good work in us will complete it. God works in humans, producing the desire to fulfill God's will and the power to achieve it. We're not saved by works, but we are created for works. Uh, whose salvation is it? Mine or ours collectively? And the answer is both. Um, it's both mine and, and it's ours. Salvation involves one's reconciliation with God, but also one's reconciliation with others. So the second part of this uh, working out our salvation um, is a story, in fact, a, a, a series of stories that I want to tell. So one of my favourite parts of the series so far has been when Kathy Shepherd and Andy Bank both shared, and they shared some personal stories to illustrate God's faithfulness in their life, and it was really powerful. So, again, I'm blatantly copying others. Um, the last time I spoke in church, I shared the story of uh, Mary and Martha and talked about how we are all different as, as people. Um, I, had, I confessed that I was much more of a Martha than a Mary, and I struggled to find ways and find the time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Um, But how important it is that we do fit at the feet of Jesus. Um, And I knew that I needed to do something about that that realisation. In fact, earlier this year, I had some uh, life choices to make. 
and I'd been feeling guilty that I had preached on this and had done virtually nothing about it. So I dragged myself, kicking and screaming, to take um, a week out, not four weeks like Rob is taking, um, and I did a solo retreat, which sounds really terrible. Um, uh, I had to pray and fast and uh, review life and spend time with God. I had to change the rhythm of my days and to make space for God to refresh me. I had to sit still. I had to breathe in and breathe out and do it again and again. So I want to share three things from that, that week. That week I was expecting to be painful. I'd been putting off for a long time. Um, a week that just didn't feel like was who I am or what I could do. The first thing I learned is that when we make the time to sit at the feet of Jesus, he wraps his arms around you and he lets you know how much you are loved. Um, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't expect that. Um, it was really amazing and truly humbling uh, to be in his presence. And so I want to encourage you, if, if you find it hard to wait at the feet of Jesus, um, find a way to do it that suits you, um, and you'll be amazed at what happens. The second thing I learnt was about growth. I was at a place called Gilead, uh, which is in rural Wairarapa. A um, number of you have been to Gilead. Um, it was midwinter, it was cold and wet and miserable. Um, every day I walked around the grounds in gumboots and did a, a prayer walk. Um, I got this huge sense of the bleakness of winter, the monochrome. Um, but even in the bleakness, there was an overwhelming sense of the growth that was within the plants, within the soil itself, that would burst forth in the spring. It made me think about how everything that God has created is created for growth, and that God expects me to grow. So one definition of work out your salvation is that we grow into our salvation. One of the things that I did on the retreat was to review the last six years of my life. I had quite a big life change six years ago uh, when I finished uh, paid employment, and I'd never really sat back and thought about what's happened in the intervening years. And I knew that in my review, I had to use growth as the lens for assessing, assessing those years. For most of my life, the world has fed me the lie that my value is based on money and what other people think of me, how much I earn, what I have. I've always known it's a lie, but sometimes it's hard to resist the drip, drip, drip of the world. So in the last six years, the world would say, I've wasted my time because I've had no, no earnings. But through the lens of growth, I can see that the last six years has been one of the richest periods of my life. And it was tremendously affirming to see God's hand on those years, leading and directing me, gently allowing me to grow, nudging me through doors that I was fearful of, giving me unexpected delight from situations that I could never have dreamed of. I also realised that growth isn't only for the young. Um, and I, I guess I had fallen into the trap that you grow fastest when you're young and that you know, there's probably more growth happening over there than over there or over there. Um, but again, that's a lie. Growth is for every stage of, of our life. Um, and that when we think about our futures and the choices that we have, we should use growth as a key motivator for our decision-making. Will this new opportunity, this choice, give me opportunity to grow? 
And I clearly don't mean grow my bank balance or grow my social value, but to grow me into who God designed me to be. Will I become more Christ-like through whatever is ahead? So the the last thing that came out of um, my time in Gilead, also related to growth, um, and it's a story that um, I shared a little of uh, a few years ago. Um, So it's about a life-defining moment for me, and I thought I had fully digested um, this experience and this lesson. But at Gilead, God showed me different. Um, It's back to the photo of my mum. So my mum was the type of person who made friends with everyone. Um, We were on a a flight to France. Um, This is a grumpy um, German ear hostess. Um, that she made friends with. She sweet-talked her into giving her a tour of the plane. Um, and the story's kind of about this, this trip. So um, my dad was in Kia in Wanganui, which is a couple of hours north of here. Mum wanted to travel but couldn't travel by herself anymore. So Jackie and I, uh, we took mum on this amazing, uh, amazing trip. And... Um, So we were in the middle of nowhere in France, um, a long way from many towns, and we got a call from my sister in Wanganui uh, saying, get home quick if you want mum to see dad alive. He's only got a short time left, so not a phone call that anyone ever wants to get. So panic stations ensued, and I turned into a focused, driven force of nature trying to find flights home uh, to get us home. I spent hours waiting for airline call centres, We all know what that's like. I spent $400 on toll calls that night. I found us flights to the US and for the next next morning. We got virtually no sleep. We had to find our way to Toulouse, then Frankfurt, then LA. We had no confirmed flights from there on, but we talked our way into flights back to Auckland. So back in Auckland, um, I was pretty exhausted, I have to say. Um, We didn't have flights to Palmerston North, which is the closest town to... Uh, Wanganui, um, the Air New Zealand flight was full and they did an amazing job and they talked someone out of giving up their seats for us, so it was, it was really special. Um, at each uh, airport that we landed, we called home and yes, Dad's still alive, but hurry. Um, when we got to Auckland, my sister said, Dad's still alive, um, but can you ask the pilot to fly faster? So it was cool. Um, so we got to Palmerston North, it's only 50 minutes drive from Wanganui. Um, my nephew picked us up. Um, yeah, I was pretty spaced out, I have to say. And we, uh, Dad was still alive, and we started driving. We got within 15 minutes of Wanganui to a place called Turakina, and I looked out the window, and something... Something in my spirit knew that Dad died in that moment. And something amazing happened. So I expected to feel pain and loss and grief, the pain of failure, because <clears throat> I'd taken on one of the most important tasks that a son can have, to give his mum the chance to say goodbye to her husband of 55 years. And it failed by 15 minutes. But instead of despair and hurt, God gave me one of the most amazing and unexpected gifts I could ever have, which was absolute joy. In that moment, 
I had delight that dad was no longer suffering from a broken body and broken mind, but that he was dancing in heaven in the presence of his saviour. Got to Wanganui 15 minutes later, and dad had died when I knew he'd died. So for the last six years, I have... Um, that's been a really powerful story in my life. But at Gilead, when God brought that story up again, I realised there was more, and a more important lesson that I had not learned from it. When I prayed at the start um, of this um, talk, I prayed that God would touch my lips. And uh, that took me back to um, a very memorable picture in Rob's uh, series on the temple, when he talked about um, the burning coals touching our lips uh, to purify us of our imperfections. So I think I'm not alone at always um, being horrified at this image, having my lips seared. Um, I'm as good as anyone at avoiding pain. I've always struggled to embrace the Christian theology of suffering. But when I think of my story of failing to get mum home, of the pain of trying, the stress, the tension and effort and the abject failure. I look at suffering in a different light because the joy of receiving God's gift more than eclipsed any sense, any memory of pain. To know and experience God's closeness, his goodness, means that if that means I have to do something hard, something that I wouldn't choose to do, I'm okay with that. Um, pain and suffering are an important part of my growth. Remembering God's faithfulness in good times and in hard times gives me confidence to look into his face and to say, what's next, Papa? For it is God who works in you, that's growth, in order to fulfil his good purpose. Okay, we are wrapping up now. And... I want to finish with a much shorter story now, um, but again, a, a story of, of growth. So a few weekends ago, Jack and I went to a wedding of a very good friend. Um, I remember hating weddings vehemently and trying to get out of going. I was especially grumpy if I had to miss a sporting event for a wedding. If there's an all-black game on or a cricket match, it was like, how inconsiderate is that? I can remember me as a young man grumpily echoing my father, Weddings were a waste of a good afternoon. So how is it that some 35 years later, the wedding we've just been to, I love going to my friend's wedding. It was a real privilege to be part of their community, celebrating with them, wishing them the best, an occasion of deep joy. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It's like I'm a different person. I have grown. We grow. And the consequence of growth is that we change. We are all changing. And the amazing thing about how God has made us is that we get to choose. We get to choose the type of people that we change into, the types of parents that we will be, the type of spouse, the type of friend, the type of worker that we will be. We get to work on our salvation. We sometimes think that we have no choice. I am who I am. Um, I spoke to a friend the other day in his uh, early 30s, um, and he was struggling in his relationship and must have had a, a fight the night before, and he said in desperation, oh, we're just too old to change. We are who we are. And something inside me just broke. Saying, That's a lie. That's, yeah, in your early 30s, I'm nothing like I was in my early 30s. I'm a different person. 
Um, I truly believe that God has made me, that I'm precious to him. But yes, I have warts and scars and tempers and habits that fall short of who I'm supposed to be. So I choose God. I choose to walk down the path of change, believing that with God's help and only through his power, I can change, I can grow. I'm now in my, would you believe it, sixth decade. (laughs) I take confidence in the growth that God has given me to date. We have a faithful God. But I know that I have so much growth ahead of me. In my seventh and eighth and ninth decades, I will be growing just as much and changing just as much to be transformed into his image. Okay. Closing prayer is from chapter 1, 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.